Stay hungry, stay foolish. It is rare today for employees to stay with one organization for the long tenures that were the norm before the Great Recession. In fact, job hopping is the new norm, especially for millennials. Today's episode shares how to leverage this fact rather than fear it. By engendering a lifetime of loyalty from former employees, leaders can see them return in the form of customers, partners, clients, advocates, contractors, and even returning employees. Today's episode is a pragmatic answer to the outdated corporate mindset around employee turnover. Instead, it shifts the focus to creating lifetime loyalty from your alumni who will bring back business again and again. We welcome author of The Boomerang Principle, inspire lifetime loyalty from your employees. Lee Carraher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Aidan. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Lee. I thought a great way to start would be some quotes, and I'll give context to these quotes afterwards. Here we go. They're dead to me. I'm not going to spend all this time training them just to have them leave. They're job hoppers who don't know a good thing when they see it. I'm on a constant training revolving door. As soon as someone's trained up, they're out the door. Why am I wasting all my time? It'll be faster to do the work myself. These are the sentiments that you have heard many times from entrepreneurs, CEOs, managers, and supervisors in your work helping companies create positive intergenerational teams, organizations, and workplaces. This is the conundrum you set out to answer in this book, and I'd love if you gave us a bit of context on it. Sure. Of course, today people would say, okay, boomer, if you said all those things. (laughs) But those are the things in my first book, which was called Millennials in Management, which I wrote after failing miserably at keeping millennials in my business. I was doing all this workshops all over the country, United States, and actually Germany, and some in Canada. And every in every single session, someone would raise their hand and say, you know what, screw these millennials, they're dead to me. You know, they leave me, they're dead to me. Why am I spending all this time? And I would just sort of peel with it. No, that you can't have people be dead to you <laughs> because um, it's just so antiquated, this thought that once somebody leaves a company that they would be dead to you because, one, we know that uh, Gen Z and millennials are planning to leave companies with between three and five years, sometimes one to three years, right? They're planning on it. And if you've done all the work to bring someone into your company, you probably have done a good job, probably, of finding a person who would fit. So to know that someone is leaving you doesn't actually necessarily reflect on you, it reflects on them. And what if you brought everybody back who was good who left your company at one time or the other. Imagine the incredible efficiency and message that would send to the rest of the world. So instead of thinking about people as dead to them, when people automatically leave the company, we should be saying, congratulations on your new gig. How can I help you? And I hope you come back. And so that's why I wrote the book, because too many people were spending too much energy not ensuring people would be wanting to stay at a company by training them, by walking them, by figuring out what they wanted to do in life. And by having this very negative point of view of that people were dead to them when they left. 
just to let the audience know that in this book, you do a great job of explaining how to leave well. So you do have an option to come back. You also give great examples of how do I rearrange the final times, if I'm expecting to leave an organization, how do I reinvent myself before that? And perhaps I'd even stay if I get a different opportunity within the organization. And then also as a business that we don't condemn those that leave. And often this happens when somebody leaves an organization, they get the blame for a lot of unfinished business or for doing projects that didn't go anywhere. Before we even start, let's make sure everybody's on the same page and you do a great job of running down through all the generations that are in the workplace today. So we're all on the same page with the intergenerational workforce. So today, all around the world, this is the first time in history that we've had five generations in the workplace. So the silent generation who is now between 66 and 83, um, all the way down to the boomers, the Xers, the millennials, and now the Gen Z. The Gen Z are now the oldest Gen Z in the workplace is 23, almost 24 years old. Of course, it's traditional that we would have two main generations in a workforce when work was shorter and people stayed much longer in their careers. However, the economy is one factor in having people work longer, and then people are living longer as well. And then third, if you are planning on a 20-year retirement, if you're going to live an extra 20 years, you might not retire till 70 for a 20-year retirement. So all those things together um, have put us in a position where we have five distinct generations with their distinct moments in history that define them, that color their outlook. And so much is put into the conflict between generations. I think this is not new. It's just we're living through it. And because there are five generations and they each have their own distinct issue, it just feels much more prevalent today than it ever has. And millennials, you say, get a hard rap. Oh, my gosh. They get such a hard rap. It's really offensive. And I'm a boomer, so I'm the last year of boomer. You know, and I think a lot of the rap that gets, if you recall, it's really in 2008, 2009, 2010 is when the whole millennial suck narrative starts, uh, particularly in the United States. And that is in the wake of the slow decline and then the Great Recession and the displacement of 10 million boomers and Gen Xers in general who lost their jobs. Uh, at the same time, you have a younger generation who is more educated, who has more access to people and information than uh, their older compatriots ever had are trying to get work, and they want work that matters. And of course, this is also not new. We all want work that matters. Just boomers never said it, neither did the Gen Xers, out loud, until they had made it. And millennials are saying, as they enter the workforce, they expected more from their work than their older colleagues had. So it's just a confluence of issue. Um, so they're lazy, they're entitled, they don't know how to work. This is just crap. They are not lazy. They do know how to work. It looks different than the way we do. They are very motivated and they're easily demotivated by the things that we, we as older people would have just accepted. And the reason they are demotivated by the things that my generation would have just accepted is because my generation, as their parents, have taught them, you don't have to put up with stuff, right? And you should be valued for who you are and you can do whatever you want. This also is combined with great inflation that in the United States in particular has had a significant impact in the workplace. So 
in the last 15 years coming into 2015, so from 2000 to 2015, the average grade point average in the United States rose by a full point in colleges. So on a 4.0 scale, which is what in general we are graded on in the United States, you could actually get a 5.0, which of course is impossible by math. However, all these exceptions were made and you could actually get a 5.0 on a 4.0 scale. So all grades sort of floated up. So when people graduated from college with a four or five or anything between then, they went into the workplace. And of course, it's very unusual that you would exceed expectations the first time you tried anything in the in a new environment. But this is not these kids' experience based on their college grades. And they had so much disappointment of my work is done. Actually, it's not done. It's not even close to done. This was a common, it, it still remains a common phenomena for early grads from college in all different walks of life and all different walks of careers. And because they have not had the critical feedback, and the feedback looks good, even if this grade wasn't. So what was a B is now an A. And B work, you would expect to keep working at. Uh, A work, you would not. There's more A's than there are B's in the college grading system today. So all these things together make this impression by older people that they're, they're lazy and they don't know how to work and that they are entitled. Well, of course, 80 million people cannot be entitled. 80 million people cannot be lazy. 80 million people cannot know how to work. Statistically impossible. Maybe it's our point of view that we need to shift and understand where the genesis of all this conflict is. As you remind us, this isn't entitlement, it's often conditioning. But let's move on to the job hopping aspect, because job hopping isn't new to most boomers and Gen Xers. We've just forgotten the late 90s, and we haven't learned how to deal with it efficiently and positively. So true. So job hopping is not new. It's just when, um, as boomers and Gen Xers have come into management situations, they realize how challenging job hopping is for an organization and how expensive it is for an organization. Frankly, when we hire somebody, we know they're going to leave us. It is not a mystery. The only person who has to stay is the last person who owns who has to turn off the lights, right? So instead of being fearful of the job hopper, we should acknowledge the job hoppiness of a career, that you'll go from job to job or maybe career to career. Millennials and Gen Zs expect to have multiple careers, not just multiple jobs, multiple careers in their life. And by definition, they would need to change functions and change their realm of uh, knowledge and skill base to achieve that. So instead of being worried about it, we should uh, change our mind and go, we know. In fact, I tell all of my employees in their first week in my company, any new employee, I know you're going to leave us. And of course, they look at me like I'm crazy, like I just got here, you know, <laughs> and we are pretty picky about who we hire. But I just am very upfront about it. You're going to leave. Um, I hope you leave after many, many, many years, and I hope you leave after you've had uh, so much experience here at Double Forte that you've learned all these different skills that you can't even imagine, and that when you go out into the world, you are proud of being at Double Forte. And because I have this point of view, um, I sort of take the fear of um, them leaving off the table, and then we focus on what is the job we have to do and what is the thing, what is the things that the person filling that job wants to do? And how do we match those two things up? 
Because if we can match what the work is with the person who wants to do the work and shift it accordingly over time, we all win. We all win. The third thing on that is any job you're doing today is going to look very different in three to five years. I started my company, which is a public relations firm, before Twitter. And now 50% of our revenue is in social media. Well, if I had said we only do things the way we've done them, I'd be out of business, right? Um, and that is, um, from a functional point of view, um, we all of us will be doing things very, very differently. So if we have people who are, are looking for new things or want to stay relevant and we use their energy for, that, uh, for what they want to do for their own careers for our benefit and our companies until it doesn't work anymore, everybody wins. But, and the company has kept people longer, which is a benefit. People become more efficient over time. Institutional knowledge increases over time. Um, you don't have to replace and recruit and all those other um, uh, costs. And the person um, has probably, if they have chosen chosen to stay, because it is the job keeper's market now, has decided actively to stay and, just, and has exhausted their experience that they can right now in their lives gain from the company. And when they leave, you're excited that they stayed and they achieved and they're on to their next thing. And hopefully they, too, are appreciative of the flexibility that you've afforded them in their own career. One of the things I really was struck by, this idea of being loyal to people who leave you, because so many people give so much of their energy, their time, their family's time to businesses, and then they leave, and then they get condemned for leaving, and it comes into an us and them. And you share a staggering statistic saying 60% of people you interviewed and surveyed across the country indicated that their companies either had a strict policy or unspoken one, but well understood rules against rehiring former employees, regardless of how well they did in their previous position. And in a recent survey, half of companies either still have or recently abandoned the policy against hiring boomerang employees, even if that employee left in good standing. I thought that was staggering and disappointing as well that we condemn those who leave businesses. I mean, it's so short-sighted, right? We're all looking for that top 25%. You could be a small company or a large company. We're all looking for those top 25%ers of performers. And performance is not just about achievement. Performance is about collegiality and working together and solving problems that you can't even put on paper. There's so many things that people contribute to work that goes way beyond the function of the job that they fit in, that they contribute to a culture. And to say that they are no longer valuable to you once they've left really is the wrong definition of loyalty, number one, because loyalty is doing something when you do not have to do it. Loyalty is not doing something because you're getting paid. That is a transaction. It has nothing to do with loyalty, not one thing. Loyalty is going out into the world, and I see somebody, Aiden, who I want you to meet, and I say, Aiden, Oh my gosh, I just met Joe. You need to meet him. I know you guys are going to get along, number one, and I think you'll benefit from meeting each other. That's a loyal act. Me waiting for you to pay me back is not a loyal act, right? So one, let's get rid of the right, let's use the right definition of loyalty. And two, let's understand that when people leave us, they can hurt us or help us. We should be helping them help us at any situation. So your footprint as a company, expands every single time somebody leaves you. They speak for who you are, even if they're not employed by you anymore. So how can we flip our point of view to say, 
there's another ambassador for my company going out into the world. How can I support them? How can I help them do well? And how can I help them help me in the end or help my company in, in the end? And this is a way we can all be larger by virtue of the fact that the people who leave us. And I love that idea of loyalty. There's a line in the book that really resonated with me. You said, loyalty means leaving when you're no longer motivated. The most loyal act an employee can do is to leave when he or she is no longer interested or motivated by his or her work or the opportunities available at the company. And I really identified with this. I left the company at that moment where I was getting promoted and I strove to make myself redundant, but I really left because I was bored. I was no longer evolving. But the worst thing about that is the business sometimes then creates a story about you. They try to justify it in some way instead of actually going, that's a really good thing to do. And actually, as you say, a very loyal thing to do. I mean, a loyal person says, I'm not contributing the fullest I can. I'm actually taking something away from this organization more than I'm giving to it. And that's the most loyal thing someone could absolutely do is leave you when they're not contributing anymore or they don't see that point where they might contribute again. And of course, you know, over a course of your tenure at a company, you may have periods of high performance and okay performance. Um, and they may be personally related, right? I started my company because my mother was dying. We've had many people in my company have parents die during the course of their tenure. And so we flip their work so they're still contributing, but they're not necessarily responsible for everything they are when things are good at home. So beyond that, right, beyond the natural ebb and flow of interest and achievement, if everything's good and you just want to do something else in your company, you cannot do it in your company, you should not stay, right? You just shouldn't stay. We have a woman in our company who is going to go back to school in a year. She's already told us, well, now we have 10 months to replace her. and She's going to be part of that whole discussion. We've had one of the people who left earlier in my company earlier this year had been with the company eight years, which is an extraordinary long time for a public relations firm in San Francisco. And we were in a conversation for 18 months about the fact that he wasn't sure this is what he wanted to do. So, of course, he took it to heart what I said in my book, right? He goes, I'm not sure this is what I'm going to do. Maybe I should leave. I said, well, do you know where you want to go? No. I said, well, you don't have to leave unless you know where you want to go. As long as you're performing and contributing and doing your work. It's okay to stay. Let's just have this conversation. And let, if you want me to help you figure out what's next, I will help you figure out what's next. And then he saw us through someone's leave, a medical leave, and someone's maternity leave, and someone had somebody die in their family. Um, and those people all came back. And he was a person who held it all together for the, those account teams. And when all those people got back on board and he was going to transition back into other accounts, you know, he said to me, if I'm going to leave, now's the timely, because I'm not on anything. I'm going to transition off all my accounts, and we're going to go find something for me. Let's not go find something for me if I'm, if I know I want to leave. And then he gave me eight weeks of notice, eight weeks of notice. Um, in eight weeks of notice, we were able to have very positive conversations with our clients they all were behind his decision. We were able to put people in place and have tremendous overlap. And then the week he was leaving, he was sort of, he was bittersweet about the whole thing. He's like, oh my gosh, I don't want people to miss me. And I said, you know, we're all going to miss you, Joe, but people aren't going to miss your work necessarily. And that means you have done your work. You have done your job. Everything is so seamless because you were so loyal to us. So thank you. What if everybody had this point of view? 
What if businesses had this point of view? Oh my gosh, we'd be so much happier. You tell us the changing dynamics of recruiting and retaining the best employees that have emerged in the recovery from the Great Recession have flipped the emphasis in employer branding from being a great place to work to being a place where great people work. And it seems like a very subtle, but it's a very dramatic shift in emphasis. It's a very dramatic shift. I mean, I think if you're a top performer, top performers want to be around other top performers. And they want to be around people where they can achieve more and they can contribute to better achievement. And if they're all on the same page, it's just much more seamless and met less friction. And most people are not looking for conflict. And in a place where we've not only have has the corporate world changed, right? So we have many more people being forced, either mostly forced, to work as contractors because people are not putting them above the line. Companies are putting more people below the line than above the line, number one. And then two, we all know that we can't count on any company to keep us forever, right? If nothing else, we've learned that in the last 10 years. Um, so the whole implied contract, if you will, between and particularly in the United States, between companies and their employees has been shattered, if it was ever there at all. And the idea that if I'm good and I operate well and I operate to a positive, I can pretty much go wherever I want is pretty true in almost every part of this country, in almost every single industry. Now, of course, there are industries that that does not qualify for, like coal and some of the energy fields and depending on where you are in this country and farming, it's just very, very challenging. However, most white collar jobs, those top 25 percenters can write their own ticket. They want to go where it's good, where they can achieve, where they contribute, where they can uh, be aligned with the purpose of the organization and they can be around other people who have the same values. Well, in that kind of situation, you know, how many swings you have in the office and how many ping pong tables in the office and are you giving kombucha free you know, ceases to be important. Um, and what becomes more important are the values and the purpose of an organization and how people get along together and achieve together. Yeah, and you mentioned there contractors and experts predict that by 2020, more than 50% of all jobs will be held by contractors rather than employees. And building on that concept, you say companies must now embrace themselves as talent brands known not only for their products and services, but as importantly for their ability to hire and develop exceptional people who are proud to be associated with the employers. And this is really important, this idea of building a brand called you, that you are maybe a thought leader on LinkedIn or social media or your own blog or your own side gig, your own side opportunity, because that allegiance or that alliance to a brand then makes the brand look good. Well, the worst thing that can happen to a company is somebody who's known for being a top performer leaves you off their resume. Happens all the time. <laughs> it's the worst possible thing. I thought you worked at such and such. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. It's a body blow to those companies, you know, because they're trying to get good people in the door. In many ways, corporate structure has forced this on employees or people who are working, doing their work. But the top 25, top 30 percenters are embracing it and saying, you know what? I'm going to do this instead of that. And I'm not going to put up with this. I'll put up with that. So back to your original point about, you know, you're dead to me. Oh, my gosh. All you're doing is shrinking your talent pool from which to pull because of the transitive nature of all those things. So let's explore then how to create an exceptional talent brand. And you say the first step is creating a culture of return to create a culture to stay for. 
So if you're worried about people leaving you, you're worried about the wrong thing, right? Because we know they're going to leave. We should be focusing all of our energy on, on what is it that will keep people in our entities. And not just anybody, right? We don't want the laggards. We don't want the people who are just taking advantage of us. And that's very few people. It's very, very few people. We want to create organizations where people are happy to come to work, where they are, feel they're making a difference in the world, where they like who they're working with, like they're feeling and that they're achieving more and more and they're staying relevant. We all know how important being relevant in today's workforce is. Um, like I said earlier, you know, all of our jobs are going to change within three years. So we have to continually stay relevant. And that's a company's job to stay relevant. And it's our personal to our your point about the, the your brand. You have to stay relevant, too. So we're we're going to put your focus on. Right. So one is what is your mission and vision and, and what are you here for? And being really crystal clear on that, Two is having values that articulate the behavior that you are expecting from your employees, the bosses, the people, their partners, and your customers so that what you're doing is not grating on your soul. Three is the behavior among people. And four is understanding how individuals uh, fit into a machine. Individuals have their own aspirations, have their own life problems and their own life goals. How do those things fit into a function and a team that you have on the company. And I guess the last piece is that if you do not feel like you belong to the organization, there's no reason to stay. And those five things are all about belonging to an organization where your role is understood and appreciated, where your work is contributing to a greater good that is articulated by your vision and mission, and hopefully you're doing no harm in the world. This evolution of purpose-driven life is not just about business, it's about life as well. And it's pervading the globe. And a culture of vision and values is really important. And I love what you said about vision. Great visions are based in the future. They are aspirational and big. They are emotionally charged and paint a positive or hopeful picture of the future. And here you break down what a good vision should look like. And I think this is really important because you need to include your staff or your senior management team at the very least. If you're a company of one, you can do it yourself. <laughs> if you have more than one person, uh, you need to include other people. We talked earlier about sort of intergenerational divides. Some of the intergenerational divide that uh, divides us is our understanding of language. Um, and the more we can involve everybody, or at least a portion of everybody, in the process of articulating uh, vision and values, uh, the more likely we are to be using the kind of language that will include everybody in the organization um, so that everybody understands. And if it's me imposing a vision, well, if I'm a company of one, it's fine. But since people are choosing to be there, we all know we make better decisions by taking other people's input. We may not all, we may not agree with input. We may not take everybody's uh, recommendations, but by having the input, we make better decisions. And so the more inclusive you can be in my book, I recommend a book called The Advantage by Pat Lencioni. It's probably the best book for this group process that I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them. And it's adapted that process that he has into my own organization and into the organizations that I help through my other company. And let's move on back to that intergenerational aspect, because you say while boomers are the wait my turn generation and may have been comfortable with hierarchy, then Gen Xers may have been confident in their ability to make shit happen on their own because without a lot of input because they kind of had to. 
But then millennials demand a new style of leadership and management. It would be great to share a bit of this. A few things about them. One is they've, they've been raised by boomers who may be disappointed with the fact that they waited, number one. They also have been told their whole lives that they can do whatever they want. Most of them have had more power in their hands than went to the moon, so they can access any or they at least they think they can access any piece of information or any person. You know, you can see, you know, one single tweet sends jets back to the terminal at airplanes, at airports, and they have a lot of power that they understand how to marshal. So all of these things together, they're used to, it's much more of a flat world than a hierarchical one to the millennial and Gen Z now uh, generation, where the ability to access almost anything has they've had since they were in their teens. So they come into a workforce and it's, if it's hierarchical, like they have lots and lots of layers and you're not supposed to talk to the boss of the boss of the boss without talking to the boss of the boss, you know, that kind of stuff, which is how I grew up in the workplace. This is false ladders, if you will, for this generation. So they want and expect to be asked. They expect their opinion to matter. They expect that their work will be important and because it always has been in their own conditioning, as you said uh, earlier. So the first thing we need to do is uh, honor that. We can't just dismiss 18 to 22, 23 years of upbringing just because they've started working. Uh, We have to honor that and then figure out how we can engender all those things and at the same time create a culture That also lets people achieve in an orderly fashion, because if everyone just got to do what they wanted to do, we would probably not get a whole lot done. So those things that you can do right off the bat is what I say to millennials and and younger people. I say all the time, you know what, you're going to start a job and you're going to have a great idea. You're going to see a big hole. Day one, you're going to see a huge hole in the organization and you're going to say, hey, I know how to fix that. And my plea to you is not to say it on day one. Just wait a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> Just wait a couple of weeks. Because the most offensive thing you could do, if you're not whole, if you're not hired as a fix-it person, and in general, 22-year-old or not, is to observe for a while. And then maybe you'll understand why there's a hole, or maybe you won't. But that's just so offensive to the people who are there. If you were told day one of meeting somebody, you have a big hole, and I'm going to fill it for you. Yeah, thanks very much. So just wait. Um, The other thing I tell, write it down, keep it note, observe, see what goes on for about a month if you can, a couple weeks, at least a couple weeks. The second thing is to do it their way first, right? So there's a process. There's a process that exists for a reason. You may never understand the reason, but we want to understand why. Uh, And particularly Gen Z and millennials want to understand why they do it this way. Isn't this the old way? Can't we do it better? Can't we use technology to make things better? So uh, do it their way first. And then after uh, you understand their way, um, then you can have your your idea of how it could be done better. Ask to talk to somebody, your boss or your manager to say, is it possible? You know, I, um, I wonder if I could do it this way and I might be able to do, you know, shave a couple hours here and get this other information here. Is that, uh, how does that sound to you? And you might get someone who says, that is such a great idea. Unfortunately, we have all these compliance things that you can't see yet. Uh, you know, only only been here a few weeks. 
you can't see all the compliance things that uh, our process actually generates in the system. But God, that's a great idea. I wish I could do that. Or you might get someone said, yeah, let's go for it. Make sure that you cross these T's and dot those I's. Or you may get some jerk that says, absolutely not. Yeah, you don't, you don't know. You're too young. Well, if you get that person, you know, now's the time to start thinking about, okay, what can I suck out of this job um, until I find a new boss in the company or go find a new job, right? Um, but don't just leave that day, right? You can learn something from every organization, from every person. Um, and if you get someone who's just giving you the strong arm all the time, that's not the right match. So what can you suck out of the job? What are you going to learn so that you can go apply it to somebody else and not let that person hurt you beyond this organization? Before we move on from millennials, we talked about conditioning and not entitlement. One of the things that you often hear, the kind of heuristics you hear is that they want feedback on everything and a pat, pat on the back for every little thing. And, you know, I, I come from a generation where you didn't, a, a tap on the back was very close to kicking the ass. So you, t you didn't go looking for things. And if your manager didn't come to you, that was a good thing. One of the things I thought was really interesting was just like you said, hierarchy doesn't exist for a millennial because it's so, the world is accessible. You can reach people quite easy. You can find their email address. You can find them on social media, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing happened with conditioning of feedback because in a world where you live on social media, you're constantly getting feedback on everything, whether you want it or not. Absolutely. You know, um, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Right. And uh, some of this has to do, I mean, so you're going to hear a lot of disparaging things. Some of this has to do with, you know, chore charts, um, which I don't know if you know what a chore chart is, but chore charts became really uh, popular about 20 years ago with small kids that said, oh, make them, you know, if they're going to do their dishes in the dishes, break down the dish, put it, doing the dishes into five steps. And then every time, make sure they're doing it right. I thought you were going to say with employees. I use them with employees all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking. All right, oh, sorry. <laughs> I broke but, your but flow. If you, if you condition people to break everything down in, into, into steps and needing to have check-ins at every single step, well, that's what you get, right? So part of your job as a manager is to say, okay, give a lot more context there's so much more context than you probably ever needed to do a job. Why are we doing this job? What does it contribute to the organization? Why do we do it the way we do? Just take that extra half an hour to go through the steps. Here are the steps. This is how long things should take. You've never done this before. This should probably take three or four hours. You know, for me, it takes 30 minutes, but I've been doing it for 10 years, you know. This should probably take three or four hours. If you get to four hours and you're not done, come talk to me, you know, but until then, don't come talk to me, you know, right? Um, or you could say, here are the, all the steps. Here are the check-in points. We're going to check in here, here, and here to see how we're all going, make sure. And here's what we expect to see at these points. You don't need to check in if you're on, if you're on the track to get to that moment. But giving people context to say, when are you going to get checked in? What, why would you check in? And under what conditions would you not have to check in, which is most of the time. And I'm not sure that, you know, I think always the first four years of anybody's career after college has been challenging. You know, we've had years, our whole lives have been in four-year chunks. You go into the workplace and now it's a wide open thing for the rest of your life. But particularly for this group who's had a lot of check-ins, who um, you see this in high school, you see this in college. Learning is upside down in high school now. So people are doing their homework in the classroom and watching videos and reading at night. 
So, you know, in that kind of situation, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why people want more check-ins, right? And the thing is, to have now we use that check-in to actually do better work in a more efficient way. The other thing then that's happened is there's been a shift in the business environment, much like you said there in education, with working hours. And the world is global now, so you, can, you work with different time zones, etc. But also people want that work-life blend rather than balance. So for example, one of the quotes you say is, why shouldn't I be able to go to yoga at 4.30 p.m.? I'll log in later and do my work then. And this is more demanded, not only by millennials, but by the, everybody. The, yeah, everybody's demanding this. How do you engender that within a business? So here's where the group takes precedence over the person, right? So we're all responsible to a team or to other people, our work is. And here's where we need to make sure that our work teams, our teams and our clients, in, in general, some client somewhere, right, is not impacted by my desire to have yoga at four o'clock. So one, you need to understand the full flow of the work that you're in. When is it due? What are the other levers, right? So once we understand that, then we can back up and we back up by saying, okay, my team is, so it's, imagine you want to go to Thursday yoga at four and the client, and you have something due to your person, to your boss at five o'clock on that Thursday. And that person We'll then take it and move it along the chain. And then on Friday, it'll eventually go to a client. Well, if you wait till four o'clock to give it to your manager, you have now done yourself and your manager a disservice because you're out the door to yoga, right? You don't have any time to explain what you've done, to answer any questions that person might have to help them move it along. Instead, you, as the person who's going to yoga, you need to move that deadline back a few hours and also understand, okay, if I'm going to give it to you at noon, do you have time, Lee, to look at this before uh, 3.30 when is when I'm planning to go to yoga? Because if I say no, I don't, gosh, I'm all lined up, but I do have time at noon, well, back it up, back it up. So your job and your life choice can't impact your teams. And if you have that point of view, you start looking at your week in a very different kind of way, right? You look at what you want to get done in the week and where you want to be in the week. And then you figure out when do I need to get things done so that everybody else can get their work done when I am out of the office. I could be out of the office because I'm going to a ballet recital. I could be out of the office because I'm going to the dentist. I could be out of the office because I'm going to yoga. Um, but if I take my calendar of what I want to get done and my work and my responsibility to my team into consideration first, and you do that on a Sunday, right? Look at Sunday and look at your whole week and say, okay, when do I need to move things around? Because maybe that thing that's actually due Friday, you can do Friday noon instead of Monday at 10. But you have to control your workflow as much as you possibly can and your deadline so that no one else is impacted by your schedule. The first time other people are impacted by your schedule, you should expect that that freedom to go away. You should expect it. Um, and of course, there are emergencies all the time, right? Someone has to, someone cracks a tooth, has to go to the dentist. Someone's father has a fall, someone's kid, you know, all these things happen all the time. But it should be the exception, not the rule in general, because we can do a lot better job, all of us, scheduling our own work, understanding how everybody else impacts my work and I impact everybody else's work so that I can have the schedule that I want. Then moving the responsibility back to the employee. If I'm an employee and I'm leaving a business, you talk about leaving in a way that you can come back well. I'd love if you shared this. So you might be leaving a bad boss, right? 
but the organization, you're also leaving. And you don't know who is going to have access to your file later and all that kind of stuff. So one, I think the prudent thing to do is leave a company so that you can come back. Because, you know, in 10 years, who knows, or three years, or even one year, who knows where the you know, company is going to shift. And, oh, my gosh, look at this great opportunity that availed itself. But, oh, my God, I changed all the sugar for salt. I put a whoopee cushion on the boss's chair. You too. Exactly. <laughs> I I sent malware through the system. I stole company information. I mean, all these stupid things that people do because they want retribution or just because <laughs> they're not thinking. Well, do everything you can to come back so that your record's clean. And so I always say to people, when you have decided to go, right, number one, um, you're going to give your notice. That day you give your notice, one, if you can give more than two weeks, you should give more than two weeks. Two weeks is not enough time. Um, and, and it shouldn't be a surprise if things are going well in your company and your job, it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise that you're going to leave the organization. If that's the kind of organization you're in, if you're in an organization where, oh my God, these people are going to like, you know, walk me out the door. Well, acknowledge that kind of organization, but you can conduct yourself in a way where everyone will honor what you've done. So you give your notice and there is a memo. Here's the memo. And I know we don't write memos anymore, but here's a place where you would, all the projects that I'm involved, here's the status, here's who the people you need to know, here's when things are due, here's your recommendation on how to get it done without me, you know? The people who work for you, these three people be reviewed on this date, this date, and this date, here is their reviews, clip them, clip them, clip them, right? Here's your uh, input on those people's progress since the last time you had uh, a review, and here's your recommendation on who they should report to. Just do everything you would want to have done for you if someone left you right? Just do it. And sometimes maybe you never use it, but you have done the work. And when you've given your notice, if someone does walk you out the door, which doesn't happen that often uh, in sales, it could happen if you're going to a competitor for sure. But unless it's very antagonistic, it doesn't happen that often, but be ready because maybe you're not in control. Maybe that person's not in control of when you leave. Um, and then imagine it goes well and the person says, congratulations, how can I help you? And when you, can you give us an extra week or two, you know, and then you can whip out this document and say, well, I've done some thinking about this and here's my recommendation. You can talk to that person and then for the next three, four or five weeks, you can work your plan that you've already thought about. Say thank you to everybody. Do a tour. Keep showing up. And I don't mean show up like your presence because, you know, that's actually not a skill. Show up, do your job. Do it well, clean your desk, try your hardest not to get short timers disease, and then say thank you. And then as you leave, here's my new email. I'm looking forward to, I'm so thankful for my time here. Looking forward to connecting with you all once I'm settled in my new job. All that stuff is in your head. Just get it on paper. And if you if you're controlling your exit, regardless of who your boss is, everyone around you is going to take note. And no matter what the narrative the company wants to say, everybody will know what you did. And Lee, last question for you then is you talked about creating an alumni club as a business. So let's share how to do this. And it'd be a nice way to wrap up today's show. If you're a business owner, if there's one thing you want to do in 2020, it is start an alumni club if you don't have one. It's the easiest thing to do to maintain, to have a group of alumni out in the world who are are your champions who can easily be loyal to you. So if you've graduated from college, you're part of an alumni club right now, 
and you get lots of requests for money. Well, here's an alumni club, but you're not going to get any requests for money. You can do this in many ways. So my company is small. So we use Facebook groups, a private Facebook group, but there are also several different off-the-shelf systems that you can use. McKinsey built their own. Um, It's quite elaborate. But at the very least, when people leave you, you welcome them to the alumni club. Like I actually give people a little card that says, welcome to the alumni club. Then they, I invite them to the Facebook group and then I add them to a newsletter list. So we do a, a monthly newsletter. The alumni get a variation of that. Those three things. One, they get, I know where they live. I know their birthday, right? And I know their email address because they gave it to me when they came on board. In the Facebook group, we're posting, you know, four or five times a week, things are going on in the agency, what people who used to be with us are doing, promotions that people get, birthdays, that kind of stuff. In the email newsletter, a monthly newsletter that everybody in our newsletter gets, but they get a special tailored first paragraph that might just do a little updating of what's going on at the agency. And then I send them a birthday card on their birthday from the company. And then once or twice a year, we, if we have events, we invite our alumni to come. And if our one of our clients, because we're in the PR world, we have a lot of clients, if they're giving us a friends and family discount, we offer it to our alumni as well. And then this is a network that lets people know what you're doing in this agency, keeps people connected to each other through the benefit of the company that they all worked for. And when we have a job opening, we post it there first. We send an email out to our alumni, we post it in our Facebook group. And this has driven down our recruiting costs by over 60%. Because most of the people we hire have been recommended by people who used to work for us. So where can people find out more about you, about your work with Double Forte, and indeed your book? The best place to go is LeeCarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @LeeCarraher. My books are there and my agency, Double Forte. Um, you can link there as well. Author of The Boomerang Principle, Inspire Lifetime Loyalty from Your Employees, Lee Carraher, thank you for joining us. Aiden, thank you so much.